you know, I, I fought in the Persian Gulf, spent six years in Northern Ireland, looked after the royal family for two years in Northern Ireland, visited all sorts of other areas, went into the jungle, went to Yugoslavia, jumped out of aeroplanes with the parachute regiment, all sorts of things. Hello, I'm Poonam and welcome to the Crew Chats podcast, where I speak to the people that work behind the scenes in the world of film, TV and theatre. Today's guest is Tony Hood. Tony started life in the world of locations after serving in the army for 13 years, having worked on a variety of different productions from TV series commercials to films in different roles in the locations department. Tony now works as a supervising locations manager. Over the first lockdown with a friend, Tony created the Circles app, a platform which allows crew to find work and productions to find crew, as well as offering training sessions. Tony has worked on productions such as X-Men First Class, Will, Damalola, Our Loved Boy and The Mountain Between Us, to name a few. Um, Hi, Tony. Hello. Um, Thank you for coming on to the podcast. No problem at all. Um, So my first question is, now you're a supervising location manager and what does that involve for you? Oh, okay. Um, The job starts very much in the creative element and ends very much in the logistics and budgetary element, really. At the start of the process, we're we're brought on very, very early to deal with the script and the designer and the director. And and that's, there's probably only the three of us. Um, And we start breaking down directors sort of overall creative idea chatting that through with the designer and coming up with location options that we think fit the process and that's a variable thing we could you know we're we're in the regency period we're in 2087 we're in the 2200s and we're trying to fit different things you know we're in Cheyang we're in England where there's all sorts of areas that we try and cobble that together and fit that in and make initially a broad view of it and then it gets sort of brought down to work for the money really we can't go to Shanghai we're going to have to find that in England type thing it then starts to get into once we've chosen all those locations and we've got all the scripts right we then get into planning the logistics. So getting the crew there, making sure that they're fed, watered, they've got places to change the supporting artists. All the logistics behind the camera are ours, really. We, we plan everything that's on location, how people get there, what they do, anything that you can think of is probably down to locations. Anything in front of the camera are the ADs and they twiddle away doing their thing and getting people into the right place. Anything behind the camera, we've probably already set up already. Now that can take weeks before the crew get there. Three, four weeks quite easily to get that ready. And then it's just keeping that budget working, reporting back to the producer and dealing with any anomalies should they happen between the locations when you're working in palaces and um, grade one listed buildings that are made out of wood that is 400 years old and the director wants the place covered in candles, real ones, then you've got to deal with quite a few hoops to make sure that's okay. So that's it, really, creative side, logistics side. 
I see. Actually, you've mentioned quite a few things there that I kind of want to um, delve into a little bit deeper. Now, in terms of, I know, for example, when I've spoken to people about, um, or we talk about the locations, everyone thinks it's really glamorous. That's the first thing I think people think. I think they think that about industry generally. But yeah, <laughs> but actually, it's not just going off and looking at lovely places, is it? There's a lot of um, kind of, log- like you mentioned, logistical work and getting permits and stuff like that. And in respect to that, what has been the hardest and the best places to kind of find and source and manage throughout? So it all very, each have their own anomalies. There's never, it all depends on the whim of the director, what he wants to do and how he wants to do it. It all depends on the realism of the budget. I've done TV things where they wanted to do huge, great big chase scenes through the middle of London and they just quite simply haven't got the money. And you have to go through the process with them and dial that down a little bit. But the you know the director thinks he wants to reshoot French Connection, and you've got eight pounds sixty to do it with. So you've got to come up with creative ways of cheating that with the stunt coordinators and with the ads and try and come up with things that make it look as though you're doing that, but quite clearly you're not. You're only doing it in very very small areas. So those are always quite difficult things to to overcome based on the money on then there's the odd director who will just push and push and push and push um and you've got to just try and cater for what they want and it because sometimes it can become very difficult but then also when you have achieved that it becomes very very rewarding so getting things done I mean I mean silly things so I, I did a Qantas commercial so the Qantas choir are these little kids they're all about eight to twelve they do this once every three years Qantas flies them all over the world and they sing on the top of these amazing buildings and we did the commercial for them we were strapping them on top of the statue in the middle of Hyde Park these 10 year old kids oh wow with the royal horse guards coming underneath as they do as they come off the their parade with a massive crane and it's a cycle route through the middle. So the cyclists come absolutely blazing through there. So we locked the whole of the middle bit of Hyde Park Corner off to get these kids up there. I don't think we'd be allowed to do it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) This is 15 years ago. And it's an amazing looking shot, but it's that's a sort of once in a lifetime thing. And when you get that over the mark and you get all those people lined up to say, yes, this is a good idea. And normally people in power just go, no. (laughs) Oh, okay. well, what happens if we do it this way? What happens if we do it that way? What happens if we pay for a rigging team to rig them in place? all of those questions you've got to go through so those are sort of the big rewarding thing more so than you know being in a palace being in Hampton Court Palace for three weeks it's beautiful but it's quite regimented and easy to do the little things for the money are probably the biggies no that that sounds very exciting but the other thing I was going to ask now this is more of the logistical side of it and I think I I find it very interesting and that kind of getting permits and and going into very um, whether it be old places or whether it be um, maybe even high security places or very obscure locations what's your process behind um, procuring those locations once they've been discussed as a location? So there's quite a lot of what we call stakeholders in these places which are the various little small elements of companies or charities or 
ecological areas that you have to start thinking about that you you need to cover and get them all in at once and the, and the thing that i've found generally is to try and get them into the same room early on and make them feel part of the process because if they if you catch them up later and they're worried about greater crested newts and you haven't really thought about that it really cheeses them off and and these things like bats, greater crested newts, voles, things that you haven't thought about that you, you need to be on really early. So across that whole spectrum of who owns the building, who are the conservators in the building? Is there a family that still owns the building, but it's part of the National Trust? Should I speak to the National Trust and the family? Who do we pay? Who owns the land outside? Are there any weevils or bats or newts that I need to start thinking about, nesting periods, all of those sort of things, you have to get them in the room at the same time because one of them will come up with something that you haven't thought about. And it'll be amazing what it is. Oh, that's in the... There's a lake there and the frogs spawn on or around the 3rd of July. And for 24 hours, there's just a sea of frogs as they disappear off the lake into the forest. You need to be aware of that. When are you filming? Oh, for that date. Ah, uh, that could be a real problem. Yeah. So it's it's weird things like that that you sort of become a an almost a font of knowledge very very quickly about greater crested newts <laughs> or pipistrelle bats or stuff like that, and it's just things that you you constantly have to be on top of. I wouldn't have ever thought about um, the kind of that conservation side of it actually, just side of it. That's so interesting. Um, I guess, like you mentioned, your job starts quite early on, and um, you're kind of negotiating with people, aren't you? Really, all the time. Yeah, most. And how is that? Because it's not just necessarily with the the people the people that may own or be involved in the locations that you're scouting, but it's also then sort of reporting back to say the production designer or the producer or the director, saying actually this is not available and they may have had their hearts set on a specific location. Being in the middle of that dynamic, what's that like? And how do you sort of deal with those difficult situations? So you generally learn to not present things that you're worried about because it will go down that road. They they are bound to pick that location, (laughs) no doubt about it. They will pick the difficult location. It's like a seventh sense. It's more than a sixth sense. It's like a seventh sense that they know that that will cause you the utmost pain. And therefore, they just go, that one. And that can be quite difficult. Um, you learn to ask, that when you when you get to speak to the location, you learn to ask those questions really early on to make sure that you're not getting yourself into trouble. Um, now, I know you may have sort of answered this question in, in parts of the other questions I've asked, but um, how do you begin when you get when you go on to a job? What's and, and also as a supervising location manager, um, you're also in charge of a team. You have a team of people that you work with as well. Um, how do you all collectively begin and how do you delegate your what I imagine most of the time is quite a big task? <laughs> yeah, it, it gets messy. The issue that we have is we we start really early in the process so that really it's myself drive it or it used to be this way but we used to, I used to just drive the designer around for weeks on end showing him locations so that he could and then we have discussions with the directors that now has sort of changed slightly in that we all drive ourselves because of the covid situation ah, yes. but so we start very early on on our own find a team and then it's very much a case of that location will be given a team and they will organize that all the way through the system and i just keep an eye on each of the locations 
I talk upstairs to the grown-ups and then the team deal with the locations and all that sort of thing. A question I probably should have asked you slightly earlier, actually, I know I mentioned the team, but could you just briefly explain the different, um, I know you touched upon it just there, but the mm. kind of different people involved okay. in, the, in the team, please. So in a big show, you would have a supervising location manager. That the That is somebody who will run the whole team and talks to the grown-ups, the producers and all the people that deal with the money. Um, then below that, we will have a number of location managers. Um, they will assist with their stuff early, like the scouting and the preparation of locations. But what you can normally do is give a location to a location manager and expect that to just be done from A to Z. So they'll be able to do all the paperwork, all the intentions, setting it out so that it works logistically, making sure that things arrive at the right time. No point in having the trackway put down in the second week because the trucks will already be stuck up to their axles in the mud and all of that sort of stuff is all done at the right sort of period. And then below them, there is a number of assistant location managers these are guys who can do all the paperwork, competent, but do need a little bit of check and a bit of just to keep an eye on what they're doing. Normally, uh, to be honest, I can let a good I've got Tom Davies on my job right now as the, the key assistant location manager. He's fantastic. I'd let him run a location, stood on his head. There's no problem at all there. Um, every now and again, you've just got to make sure that he is going down the right path. That's all, but he's a fantastic kid. Um, after assistant location managers, we have a very cleverly named subsystem called assistant location assistants, and they do the sort of toing and froing and work on the set. So they're the people making sure that the film crew aren't trashing the palace, that the palace is happy with what's going on, and they're the liaison between the crew and the location itself. And they'll do all the logistics. They'll make sure the bins are right, make sure the signposts are right so people aren't going into the wrong place, bumping into the wrong people. They'll keep the public out of the way, all that sort of stuff. That's my location assistance. And then after that, we have a number of marshals. We call them marshals. Other departments will call them runners. And these are the guys that are actually doing the humping and the carrying and the lifting and the putting the bins out and moving the tea table and sticking up the easy up tents and all that sort of thing. Then have our, our security team that work with us. Oh. So we'll have 10 or 15 of them or two or three of them all working with us as well. Ah, okay. Thank you um, for summarising that um, as well. It's, it's important. I think it's quite interesting for people to know. Now, I want to ask how you got into what you do because I know it's a fascinating story. So. <laughs> okay. so here, so I'll name two people. Uh, there's a location manager called Sarah Lee. I left the army in 1998. I was a major in the army. I got a bit bored and I went to a drinks party on a Thursday and I met Sarah Lee, who was location manager, had done... Spice World, if you remember. Ah, yes, I do. She'd done that sort of thing. Big hitter, lovely girl. Met her at drinks party, chatted away. 
she said to me, um, have you ever parked up a big unit of film vehicles? I said, no, of course I haven't. I have parked up a squadron of tanks under enemy fire, though, if that will do you. And she said, yes, that would be fine. <laughs> and uh, we went off and made a Terence Davies film about a week later in Glasgow, which I didn't have a clue about, really. But um, we managed to get through it. That was quite fun. Yeah, so that's how I started. Um and then I got a bit into commercials as well, but uh, that was, what, 1998. So it's been a long time, but it's worked very well. Ah, and then I guess you've also, you've worked your way um, through the department and being now supervising yeah. manager. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can I ask, and it's, it's kind of off tangent, but, but what made you want to be, be a part of the army? And feel free not to answer this question if there's something you don't want to answer as well. There was a magistrate up in a court in Yorkshire that advised me that my, um, my positive points in life would be better aimed at the army than um, mucking around in the streets of Middlesbrough, let's say. Um, and I was persuaded by the magistrate that if I continued doing what I was doing, I'd end up in jail. So he advised the army. So you can add that. I'm not worried <laughs> about that. But that was the yes, that that was my career advice. Actually, it was given to me by a magistrate. Ah, and then when you, um, I know this this podcast episode isn't about the army, and I'm really sorry to. I, I just find it really interesting. <laughs> um, when you, how how was it being part of the army? Again, feel free not. Uh, it's not if you don't need to go into details. You may not want to. No, go, that's but. all right. I mean, again, uh, you know, I, I fought in the Persian Gulf, spent six years in Northern Ireland, looked after the royal family for two years in Northern Ireland, visited all sorts of other areas, went into the jungle, went to Yugoslavia, jumped out of aeroplanes with the parachute regiment, all sorts of things. I mean, it does. The old cliche it makes you what you are is absolutely true. That my ability to organise things and my discipline comes purely from the military. Absolutely, no doubt about it. My ability to see logistics quite quickly is all from the military. It's so interesting. Just in terms of that, actually, though, it, what has been the most difficult location or jo- uh, kind of uh, locations, plural, for you to have to find or the most awkward sort of requests that have been made of you? And then you've really, really found it really quite hard. I found it a bit of a challenge, and then, but it's come together in the end. And So we did a... We did a series with Danny Boyle, and Danny Boyle's quite a, a, a he's a very hard worker. He'll, he'll shoot seven days a week, um, and we did. We shot seven days a week. And on the weekends, they let the crew go, and they got second crew in and, and shot. Um, we'd shoot stunts so that, that none of the actors were involved. So you, got, you gave them time off, but Danny would be there every day and of wow. course if it was big stunts I'd have to be there because it was my name on the bottom of the paper we were uh, what were we going to do we were going to shoot something on the Friday and on the Thursday night the agent of the building who had promised me a contract for all the week rang me up and he said that he was going off for his long weekend now and <gasps> he couldn't be bothered to do the contract and um, that was the end of it and we were supposed to be shooting that on Friday. And we'd even paid the deposit and we'd paid all sorts of things. So we'd done all the right things. He just decided he couldn't be bothered. So I was about to lose Danny's location for the Friday. So that was a little twitchy, I can tell you. I managed to hunt down who owned the building 
actually owned the building. I managed to then find their office, then find the guy who was supposed to be in charge of that building. He was out for a big boozy city lunch. <laughs> and uh, I had to jump on my motorbike, head down to this guy's office. And I basically sat in the reception of this office waiting for this guy to come back. He bowled in at about 4pm. Oh, my days. Um, fairly pissed, I'd say. And I managed to grab him before I just guessed. So I just guessed and caught him before he hit the receptionist and told him what was going on. And, and he went, oh, very sorry about that. Took me upstairs, signed the paperwork, handed it over and then walked straight back out with me and went home. And it was all done in about 40 minutes. But I thought we were going to lose the location completely on Friday. That means the whole crew would have had to stop. Funnily enough, when we got round to it, we were supposed to shoot two... Oh, my apologies, it was on a Saturday, so because it was second unit stuff. We were supposed to shoot two uh, sections. One was an ambulance crash at a location in East London, and then we were supposed to come into the city and shoot this afternoon where we were going to blow the windows out, and that's what the wind... It was supposed to be a sniper attack, basically. And so I'd got the location. That was great. We got to the stunt and the ambulance lost its first, second and third gears. And we were eventually doing the runs by pushing the ambulance to get it started so that it would then, like six guys all shoving this out. It'd do the run. We'd run down to the other end, get on the ambulance, didn't have a reverse, push it back up the hill so it could drive again and then restart. <laughs> So this took all day, and at about two o'clock, I said, Danny, we've got to move. And he went, no, Johnny, we're not moving. We're going to have to shoot this out. Oh, great. Can we shoot? And he said, we'll we'll shoot the city thing on Monday morning. I said, no, Danny, it's in the middle of the city. It's going to be murder. (laughs) And uh, we eventually got round it, and we shot there on Monday morning with um, all the city boys walking past the offices that we were about to blow the glass on. (gasps) Get out of the way. It's murderous. Absolutely. Oh, my days. That sounds yeah. stressful. I spent the whole weekend feeling quite sick, but we got through it. It was all right. There is one thing that is a bonus with Danny Boyle, is that when you go to a location, they go, oh, well, I'm not sure about this. You go, have you met Danny Boyle? <laughs> and then that's it. They just go, oh, hello, Mr. Boyle. Oh, I really <laughs> love sunshine. Oh, that is an amazing movie. And you get the location straight away. So he's got his pluses and his minuses. <laughs> um, now you mentioned those random people walking past whilst you're trying to whilst people well you're trying to blow out some windows. Um, you, I think the locations department as a whole do have to do, like you say you, you mentioned earlier. They deal with the members of public as well because often locations can simply be a house on a street and there's normal, you know, members of the public walking by. Have you had to? Is there a lot of sort of explaining and such? Because even I, pre, being in the industry, when I see a film crew, I'm I'm still fascinated on a... You must interact with so many different people in that respect as well and try to, I guess, also try to keep people happy as well so if they're in, you're in their area or whatever it may be. Yeah, you're, you're always... Um, I'm very good with old ladies because I'll go and have a natter with them over their fence <laughs> and they'll come out with a cup of tea or something. Oh. Um, I'm all right with the youth as well because I'll tell them and you know we'll we'll have a bit of a crack. Uh, there are otherwise the people who just want money from you. You're filming on my street. I want some money. Whereabouts oh. are you? I'm 154. Well, that's 
right down there. That's we're not <laughs> anywhere near you. Yeah, I don't care. I want money. Oh. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, so there's those people, and then there's obviously the there's people that are sort of ranging around that are trying to nick things. So you know, you'll have a couple of standoffs. It goes from being really pleasant, and you have to be on your best game to get things from people for free normally or get them to move out the way for free to dealing with people who are really antisocial mm. and you've got to be in the middle of that all the time that's the fun bit though i've had knives pulled on me and I, I, yeah. i'm not sure i'd say fun but <laughs> you just got to face it out though and it's all right it can be i mean you have to have a lot of security around you anyway so Normally that's okay. They're good at dealing with that sort of thing. But every now and again, you'll get somebody because you're the face on the floor. People know it's you. So you get the pointy end of it. Yeah, no, no, that that makes sense, I guess. But also, yeah, I think your experience trains you for that in a way, doesn't it as well? Just Yeah, I think, but most location managers are used to it because mm. they deal with it all the time. It's not something I would have thought about as part of your job, if I'm honest. <laughs> No, oh, it, it, it is weird, but especially when you put a letter out to people and to say, look, we're going to film on your street, you'll get 20 calls, but those would be mostly what's happening. What, what, <laughs> which film is it? What, what are you doing? Can I be in it? Do you, my daughter's an actress, singer, dancer. Ooh, triple threat there. <laughs> um, can she be in it? It's a little bit late. We're going to turn up tomorrow, but here's... You know, and and I've got like four extras agencies on my phone that I send to people because that just here, there you go. <laughs> Firing. <laughs> That's always the same. Yeah. No, you met. We just kind of. It's. I think everyone's talking about COVID, but um, you mentioned it earlier on when we were you discussing going around to locations, um, being obviously locations. COVID has um impacted all of us, and how has that changed your job? Yeah. It. <laughs> I mean, thank God we're back and, and the industry took a very quick, proactive sort of stance on trying to get get us back in and wrote mm. protocols and did all sorts of things and, and, and got us back to work again. And, and the people that were involved in that, well done them, because th there was a lot of young kids out there thinking their career was already over when it had just started. We've had a tendency of probably adding 50% to the size of our area's supporting actors marquees dining areas that sort of thing to create bubbles for safe covid practice so it's added hundreds of thousands of pounds to the budget and that's just the size of marquees and the length that they have to take to get put up so instead of it being a two-week period it's now a three-week period and all the kit that has to go in there the shields and the separation elements and all that sort of thing have uh, really just take a lot longer um, and I think trying to get through testing protocols is always quite difficult and trying to make logistically make it sure that when the prep team come on there's a COVID team there to give them their tests and that includes the strike team and working closely with all of those little, little areas has become I'd say it's taking up about a third of my time COVID rightly so it's bloody dangerous um and the cost is heavy, but, but at least we're all working. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Just in relation to your career, though, what when you look back 
um, over your over your career in locations, what has been the the most surprising thing or the the biggest thing you've seen change, in your opinion? This is going to date me. When I started locations, everybody took photographs, and they were real photographs that you ended in Soho in the middle of the night in a place called Joe's Basement. You won't know who Joe's Basement is; they don't survive anymore. They would process film. Um, for your recce photos at 10, 11 o'clock at night. They'd, they'd do overnight stuff. You you could go into Soho, knock on the door, and the guy would be sleeping under the counter. And you'd give him 10 films. You'd go and get a coffee in Bar Italia because that was the only one that was open in Soho. And you'd come back and then you'd go home and stick all those onto boards to present the next day. Pre-digital. The big change in, in the whole of the way we do things, and it continues to, to be, is the area of what digital can do nowadays, mm. not just in photography. Um, we've introduced something on our current show, which is a 3D uh, system called Matterport, and it creates 3D interiors of the locations. Wow. And it's this is an ad for Matterport. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, but it's brilliant because... It, it can you can measure distances that are accurate to one percent, and it can give you walkthroughs of the whole location. And the use of this was really my sort of idea to say, okay, this will just reduce the amount of recce's we have to do and the amount of contact with the outside world. So we'll go and do that once, and people can look at it. So we've had the art department using three D Oculus goggles, going round, checking the sizes of paintings, checking which ones need to be signed off or not checking where, where things are in the building, measurements, stuff like that. They absolutely think it's fantastic. Wow. The EOP, the Director of Photography, can look at camera angles and see what's going to be in his way and look at balconies and what he can see from the balconies. They're loving it. And, and it's a fantastic piece of kit. And it's things like that that I love. I'm really keen on, I suppose you could call me an early adopter, but I'm really keen on seeing these new things and going... I think we can use that and it would be really, really helpful because I do then do less recce's. I don't have to take the art department seven times to look at all the paintings. I just refer them to the Matterport. It's fantastic. Wow. Absolutely fantastic. So digital stuff and the stuff we use for me is the big changer. I love it. That is amazing. That software sounds really cool. Um, how how creative is your job? We have the... to be we have to be very creative at the start, mm. and in a way that we were sort of talking about it earlier. When and it's typically when you haven't got the money or when they don't want to travel anybody. So you'll see every now and again. There's an area behind Liverpool Street in London, which is the Bishopsgate building on the Bishopsgate estate, which has these huge pylons that come out of the side of the building. It looks very, very futuristic. Every now and again, you'll see those in a, a film that's sort of very modern or even out in a sort of a future period where it'll call itself Shanghai or something like that. And it's, it's our job to sort of go well, we're not going to Shanghai because it's going to cost too much. So here are your options for modern day downtown Shanghai here. Boom, 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 boom. And you've got to sort of pull those out and think about how you can do that. Within 
the modern sort of period as well is a very much a case of looking at a building and going, okay, well, if we, we don't have the show that we're doing again right now, we don't have the distances in normal streets to build what we want to do outside the front of the house. So you're looking for houses with grounds and then you look at a house, not in a way there's the house. Well, that looks great, but we'll green screen that off. We'll green screen that off. We'll take that off in at the top in visual effects um, and we'll recreate the building. But this element is the element that will work and that's in real life. And we build things out the front to make it look like a street. So you're constantly looking at a building, not just in is its physical presence, but what you can potentially turn into as a street, for example, because yeah. there's no way you can close a street down for a week in central London. So all the costs of going into somewhere like Somerset House and taking over the whole of that would just be hundreds of thousands of pounds. So you've always got to be thinking quite creatively about how you recreate that area. Oh, yeah, it's creative. It's really fascinating. Well, um, yeah. Now, um, you've started in lockdown, in the first lockdown, um, an app called Circles, Circles app. And it's about um, crewing. It works both sides. I mean, I don't, I'll let you speak more about it but it's about um helping people find work and people who are looking for people to find people to work for them but what 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 did you what how did you start it what made you want to start it and what is it about we when the first lockdown came myself and james james davies another location manager we were chatting to people on zoom and and sort of you know keeping spirits up and doing those sort of social things that everybody started with the zoom fridays with the pint of beer from a dodgy can and chat 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 and it became really apparent that the really junior element your marshals and your runners and your location assistants were scared that they were at their wits end because they didn't know when it was going to start again they were working day-to-day, hand-to-mouth, you know, you, you're not earning great money at the start. They'd moved down to London and were renting a flat, which they paid a deposit on. They couldn't pay the rent. There was tears in one or two places because they were having to go home and they were losing that couple of grand deposit that they'd given in. And it was really quite awful. Um, and they didn't know, because they don't know a lot of people, they didn't know who to go to to try and find work. So they were really stuck. And we noticed that there were Facebook groups and WhatsApp groups and email chains and various different companies who were taking money off crew to to get access to job boards and all that sort of thing. And we just thought, we were actually starting to develop a, a location manager software that was very complex, would appeal to very few location managers. And it, it we, just sort of became apparent that it would be such a nice project that it would hardly make any money. So we swapped our aim into dealing with crew and and opening up the industry so that, I say opening up the industry, it's a rather grand idea. Open, level playing field is what we were aiming at, is that everybody could see what jobs on, were on offer because there's a nepotistic thing about the industry where if you're on the right group, you'll see the jobs. If you're not on the right group, you don't you don't see things so we built what i would describe as a two-sided platform 
one side's the app, which the crew can get on. It's always going to be free and it highlights everybody's profile and it tells people when they're free to work and it allows people to see the job boards on the opposite side, which are run by the production company. The production side is a management tool for them to manage all their daily processes, posting the jobs, putting people into the right days, all that sort of thing. And the production companies pay for that and they pay a monthly fee. And what we're doing with that is we're moving that fee back into the crew by giving them training sessions to help them do that jump with a bit more confidence. So those guys, particularly in my own department, those assistant location managers that um, that have done a few years on set and know what they're doing and they can scout and they can fill the forms and things like that. The areas that they're not good at are things like budgeting. How So if they became a location manager, where would they be frightened? What would they worry about? Breaking scripts down, doing budgets, talking to heads of department, being their own, you know, their own head of department, being that, that big step. And strangely, location managers tend to hoard their budget and never show anybody. I think that's oh. their sort of dark secret. <laughs> so we sort of, you know, this is my budget. I'm not going to show you. Uh, <laughs> So I sort of went, well, this is silly. So let's do a budget. And here's my budget template. And this is all my formulas and all my Excel spreadsheets. And I can do all sorts of things and make the budgets change color if they're above budget. Here, have that for free. And I'll teach you how to use it. And then you're confident that you can step up to the next area. So that's what we're doing. We're trying to train the guys to be better at their job. Make sure that all the productions are showing everybody their work and what jobs they can apply for. And then trying to match the two up and train people and make it a great big circle. So that's circles. We're improving everybody's circle of influence and we're improving everybody's circle of knowledge. That's, that's the idea. That's amazing. It's a really valuable um, thing to be doing as well. I think it's really, really valuable and really helpful especially the fact that you pair it with the training as well I think that's really um really kind of you guys as well to be sharing your knowledge like that I mean kudos to you guys for starting it and carrying it on I imagine it uh, requires a lot of um, your own time and energy and that's admirable that you've willing to put that into helping the next generation of people in the industry you've got to give them as much help as you can to get them into the industry because we're short of people and they've got to start somewhere so we've got to get them in and get them trained and and make that career i think it's interesting because i think the the industry now is getting into understanding the damage it can do to people's mental health and i find that really encouraging and also i think part of that is understanding that certain people don't pick this up as quick but that doesn't mean that they're not going to be good at it um now that's brings me on to my last question which is what are your three three to watch recommendations so i love a sci-fi because what i i really like to see is what people's interpretation of the future is about where they see their mind going you know star trek had ipads stuff like that that's true every now and again somebody would bring something into captain kirk and he'd sign it and it'd be a tablet wow that's amazing there are things in film that are always done 
and I think the future gives people gives people free reign to come up with amazing creative ideas. So I love that aspect of it, and I like to see the design of it. So three films I'd really really like. There are actually four. So Go for it. Fifth Element, which is the Luke Besson film. Yeah. Now. And it was a Bruce Willis thing, and it's got lots of little cameos in, Gary Oldman's in there, all that sort of stuff. Really amazing costumes. But in my mind, that has dated really, really badly. Really? And, and, yeah, I, th- I don't know. I just, there's elements of it. You look at it and go, oh, that looks a bit wrong. So there's, a, and that's a big budget thing. And I just love the whole concept of it. And I love the fact that it's, it takes sort of ancient Egyptian ideas and it pushes those right forward and that there's a whole great big cosmos thing of it. And the design of the spaceships all amazing and all that sort of thing. I just thought the costumes were a bit iffy, to be honest. They didn't date well. Go then go and look at um go and look at Moon, which is virtually Sam Rockwell on his own. Duncan Jones, which is uh, David Bowie's son, uh, yeah. wrote the story, directed all of that sort of stuff. Now, I think that was fantastic. And so the idea that that was a single person working on a some sort of mining system on a on another planet and miles and miles away from Earth, and we all then find that um, there's just lots of clones and he thinks he's a person but actually he's just a clone and it's a a really organized system that the mining company has used and they just fill him full of rubbish and and he thinks he's a real person and when he dies because the radiation is so much they incinerate him and wake up the next clone and feed him the same story really easy small little film but fantastic Ah, go, and, go and see that. 2009, 2010. Sam Rockwell was the, check that out. the actor. The last one are the Blade Runners. Purely, I love Ridley Scott because he's as mad as fish. And uh, I think he's great. The The thing I love about the Blade Runners is one was what, early 80s and the other one was 2017. It's one of those films that, you sort of get the whole ethos of it. Um, Ridley Scott based the city in the first Blade Runner where it always rains and it's always horrible. He based that on where he was born in Middlesbrough. In Stockton. I was born there as well. Ah. And, he, and it does look like it's all chemical factory and all horrid and it rains all the time and everybody looks miserable. That whole sort of world i loved the way that he sort of conjured that up and what he was doing and the robots going wrong and all that sort of stuff i thought that was great but then look at how that moves on to the 2017 film almost 40 years later and how that fits on and again i thought that was a fantastic film so there you Uh, go there's my three and a half (laughs) Um, thank you Tony for your recommendations and thank you for coming on the podcast it's been really really interesting speaking with you no problem Uh, thank you for inviting me no thank you thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tony tune into the next episode where I will be speaking to director of project and commercial at Perry's Costumes Maria Ortega and if you get a moment could you please like follow or subscribe on your podcast platform and follow the Crew Chats podcast on Instagram thank you